An interesting op-ed piece caught my eye this week. It was a reflection and a commentary on the rise of seemingly random bursts of rage in places like grocery stores and on airplanes. We've probably heard some of these anecdotes, agitated passengers punching flight attendants for simply doing their job, shoppers losing their minds and yelling at people for just walking too close to their cart. But apparently, these incidents aren't just anecdotal. Publicly, these acts of, of rage and aggression are statistically on the rise this summer. It's been a stressful year around the world, and it would seem that humanity is looking for a release valve. Unfortunately, anger and rage are right there at the surface, and it's easy to turn to those as an outlet. But if there's anything the world doesn't need more of, it's outbursts of violence. I don't think our collective human hearts can handle it. Instead, and especially as followers of Jesus, this summer of all summers is a time to lean in to love. This is week three of our Summer of Love sermon series. And our hope in these messages is to really internalize Jesus' greatest command to us, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if this command becomes our own pulse, what are the tangible ways that we demonstrate that love in our lives? The first couple of weeks, we explored the question of who is my neighbor that we find in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We heard Jesus' clear lesson that the answer to that question is everybody. The people we don't expect, the people we'd rather not deal with, the people unlike us, the people we don't like, the people who need our help and the people whose help we need. Jesus blows the lid off the box of our understanding of neighbor and we begin to understand just how big our neighborhood really is. If our first few weeks helped us to zoom out to expand our definition of neighbor, today we zoom in much closer to home. We know from experience that sometimes it's easier to love someone that we don't know who is very far away than it is to dig in and love the people who are very, very close to us. Love asks us to be inclusive, but it also asks us to be tenacious to stick with people when things are hard. And today's story paints us a picture of the tenacious love of friends. This story is found in both the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, but I'll read Mark's version today. If you have a Bible nearby or on your phone, you can look up Mark chapter two. Jesus has been busy in chapter one, traveling throughout the region of Galilee. He has been baptized, he has recruited some disciples, he has cast out a demon, and he's healed Peter's mother-in-law. This is early on in his ministry, but word is already traveling fast, so he finds himself quickly surrounded by people wherever he goes, and he tends to their needs, he heals their ailments, and he teaches them God's law of love. After many days of this work, he returns to Capernaum, which is sort of the home base for his adult life and ministry. It's the place where he had healed Peter's mother-in-law just weeks before. So some scholars suggest that it may have been her house where he usually stayed and where this next scene takes place. From Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. 
After a few days, Jesus went back to Capernaum, and people heard that he was at home. So many gathered that there was no longer space, not even at the door. Jesus was speaking the word to them. Some people arrived, and four of them were bringing to him a man who was paralyzed. They couldn't carry him through the crowd, so they tore off part of the roof above where Jesus was. When they had made an opening, they lowered the mat on which the paralyzed man was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. Some legal experts were sitting there, muttering among themselves, Why does he speak this way? He's insulting God. Only the one God can forgive sins. Jesus immediately recognized what they were discussing, and he said to them, Why do you fill your minds with these questions? Which is easier, to say to a paralyzed person, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take up your bed, and walk? But so you will know that the human one has authority on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, Get up, take up your mat, and go home. Jesus raised him up, and right away he picked up his mat and walked out in front of everybody. They were all amazed and praised God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. This may be a familiar story to many of you, and sometimes familiarity blurs the wow factor a little. But if we stay with the text a moment longer, we remember just how ridiculous and how remarkable it is. Imagine you're a Capernaum local. You were buying figs at the market this morning when you overheard that Jesus was back in town. You remember him, the kind but unusual young man that works odd craftsman jobs to put food on the table. He leaves town for weeks at a time. He always stops to play games with children in the street. But his last journey out of town brought back strange reports. Remarkable, really. People were healed. And his teaching cracks open people's hearts in ways they've never experienced. He came back this time with disciples. Your curiosity is piqued, so you rush to the house where he usually stays. He's chatting with a few neighbors already, but you squeeze into the room and rest on the windowsill to hear what he has to say. Before you know it, the room is packed with people, neighbors, merchants, religious leaders even, wondering what is going on. The door is blocked, the crowd spills out into the street, the fire marshal would not be pleased. As the day warms up, the crowded room does too. You could listen to Jesus teach all day, but his voice is also soothing you into a warm summer snooze. All of a sudden, he stops mid-sentence, and the silence jolts you awake. Jesus is looking up and brushing dust out of his hair. Straw and more dust start to fall from the ceiling above him. The crowd murmurs and tries to move back from where the roof appears to be crumbling before their very eyes. Is this an earthquake? Do they have a squirrel problem? What is going on? Usually, when we hear about the friends who lowered the man through the roof to Jesus, we don't stop to consider the mess that this would have made the outright destruction of property that is taking place. But in first century Palestine, to dig through a roof was kind of a massive undertaking. A roof would have looked something like this. Wooden beams laid across the ceiling, covered with dry thatch and straw. 
And then on top of that, a layer of hardened mud or clay to keep out pests and to keep the temperatures cool. So the folks desperate to get their friend to Jesus aren't just removing a few easily replaceable ceiling tiles to lower him in. They are effectively excavating the roof. This is no easy fix. On the other end, this is a prosecutable offense. They must have worked fast, and apparently with no regard for the safety of the people inside the building, but no one tried to stop them. And they eventually managed to dangle and then plop their friend down into the middle of the room. You watch as Jesus studies the man now on the floor at his feet and then peers up through the settling dust and the gaping hole into the eyes of the four now criminals risking it all for the sake of the man they've just released into Jesus' hands. His eyes twinkle as he finds in theirs a mixture of desperation and hope, a completely insane commitment to the possibility that he might hold the power to transform life. When he saw their faith, scripture says, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And to prove the point that God has the power both to forgive and to heal, Jesus then tells the man to take up his mat and go home. The miracle was connected to their faith, their unrelenting belief that Jesus could help their friend. The man, without uttering a word, looks around bewildered, glances up at his crazy friends on the roof, and does just as Jesus says picks up his mat. The stunned crowd in the house parts for him like the Red Sea, and he walks out of the house. When we read this story through the lens of loving our neighbor, there's one image that stands out to me and asks us a lot of different questions. That image is the mat. In these 12 verses, that same word appears four times. The friends lower the man in on his mat. Jesus suggests to the legal experts that it's just as easy for him to say, take up your mat and go home as it is to forgive sins. And then he actually says those words to the man. And then the man takes up his mat and goes home. The same story could have been told without repeating the word mat so many times. Jesus doesn't have to mention the mat to the religious leaders. He could just say, get up to the man. The man could leave his mat behind once he's healed. It's almost as if the mat is a character in the story and we're supposed to notice that it's there. So what does the mat invite us to think about? This man lived his life on a mat. It was his safety. It was his security, his home, his identity in many ways. It was what he knew and where he was comfortable, even in his discomfort. It was also a symbol of his weakness. It was a sign of everything he could not do, the limitations that life had dealt him. It was a marker of those things that made it hard to be in relationship with him. His mat was the thing that he could have used to keep people out. Don't get too close to this. Maybe it was the thing he was ashamed for people to see or adamant that they do not touch. 
On the other side of the story, the mat could have been the thing that the four friends said, you know what, that's a hindrance to relationship. We don't want to get too close because that's going to be a hard friendship. Everything's going to take a little bit longer. It's going to be a little bit more difficult. There is a burden to bear if we step into that relationship. And other people might look at us funny. At that time in history, there was a stigma attached to this man's condition. Physical ailments or conditions like this were considered to be tied to sin, personal sin or familial sin. It wasn't just a physical burden for him. It was a spiritual problem to be in relationship with this man. The mat in this story is a point of pain on many levels for everyone involved. And yet, that point of pain did not become a hindrance for love. The man on the mat didn't say, no, stay away. The four friends didn't say, "Mm, that's going to be a little bit too hard. Instead of being a barrier to love, the mat, the place of vulnerability, became the point of connection that created the possibility for transformation. We all have a mat, all of us. It's that thing we're nervous for people to find out about. The part of ourselves we don't want anybody to see. It it might be something in our past or an insecurity or a fear. We're afraid that if we let it show, no one will love us because it's too difficult. It's the weakness that we need to own. It's the help that we need to ask for. It's the addiction that's running our lives behind the scenes or the depression that's stolen so much of our joy. It's the illness that we're trying to walk through and survive with a smile still plastered over our pain. It's a sin that we've committed, or it's a sin that's been committed against us. It's that thing in our past or our personality. It's a flaw in our family or our finances. It's a secret in our circumstances that we try so hard to hide because we're afraid if somebody sees our mat, They're not going to want to get close. We can use that mat to keep people at an arm's length, or our mat could become the very point where we allow someone in and we trust love to heal and to transform. Because in the story, after all, the mat was the very thing that the friends walked in and picked right up. We all have a mat. That much is a given. It's different for every one of us, but the question for us all is the same. Who is carrying your mat? Whatever burdens limit and weigh down your life, are you carrying them alone? Or is there a faithful friend or a spouse or a neighbor or a small group waiting for you to get out of your own way so they can pick up a corner of your mat? They can meet you in your mess, in your pain, in your secrets, and your insecurities because they've had their own fair share. And they can hoist you up by the strength of their own faith when you're not sure that you have enough. It can be scary and unsettling to do so. It might lead to a crazy, jostling journey over dusty cobblestone roads and a precarious and terrifying drop through a hole in a roof, but opening yourself up to that kind of love that will carry your mat 
can also lead you right into the liberating presence of Jesus. Of course, the question that comes right along with that first one then is, whose mat are you carrying? Who is the friend, the neighbor, the person sitting near you at school, the one in your circle of life who has something going on that makes them a little bit harder to love? Not because of who they are, but because of the mat they happen to be on, the one that they need someone to pick up, but they're afraid to admit it. Who is around you that needs a little extra dose of your faith and strength to get them through to the other side of a miracle? Carrying someone else's mat is an exercise in faith. It's a willingness to believe in a love that's bigger than us and trust that if we are in it together, God will see us through. And while we often think of faith as an interior abstract act of believing and trusting, in the case of loving our neighbors tenaciously, there is nothing abstract about it. Our faith is just an act. In the story, it's the very physical, tangible act of using hands and muscle and motion and sheer brute force to lift a man who cannot move and transport him across town, dig a hole through a roof and lower him to Jesus' feet. In our real lives, it's the sweat equity of making and delivering meals in a time of transition or disruption, driving a friend to chemo treatments, watching a neighbor's kids so he can go to counseling, moving a student into her dormitory because her own parents want nothing to do with her. I love how one pastor in D.C. describes this kind of faith in action. She says, sometimes I think spiritual maturity might be measured in the calories that we expend on behalf of another person. We love the neighbors right around us by tending to the real, physical, practical needs when they are struggling with the mat that they have so carefully tried to hide. It may take some work, some sweat, some effort to love in this way. But when they experience those tangible acts of love from you, maybe, just maybe, they'll find their way to knowing that Jesus still loves them too. Who is carrying your mat, and whose mat are you carrying? A good friend of mine comes to mind when I think about these interconnected questions. She is one of the strongest, most capable, warmest, and most encouraging people that I know. She has a seemingly endless reservoir of love and grace for every person who enters her life. She is ambitious, she has goals for what she wants, and she always makes them happen. She's always the first to pick up the mat of anyone in her circle who is struggling. She would come alongside the students that she taught in whatever challenges they faced. She was strong for her family when they lost her father too soon. She was a listening ear for newcomers at church who shared their own stories of heartbreak and pain. She stuck with her friends and her small group through loss and struggle, her strong faith upholding them in times when their own faltered. My friend was a carrier of many mats. Almost two years ago, though, her world suddenly changed in an instant. An unexpected divorce suddenly entered the narrative of her life. 
and the family she had so carefully and faithfully nurtured seemed like it was slipping out of her grasp or at least changing in a way she never imagined. Her world was rocked and everything that seemed to be working just fine all of a sudden wasn't. She and her ex-husband ended their marriage on the best possible terms, and they now co-parent their kids with respect and with cooperation. But single parenting isn't for the faint of heart, as many of you know. And the demands of the job that she loved made the balancing act even harder. She had grief to carry, work and kids to balance, a home to move out of, dreams and expectations to lay to rest, and faith to restore. And she did the bravest thing I've ever seen anyone do. She let people help her. What was so powerful to me about my friend in this horrible season of her life is that she didn't hide her mat. Maybe she wanted to. Maybe she wished that she could keep a happy face and sweep her broken heart under the rug so that no one would ever notice. But she didn't do that. I know it was probably the hardest thing she's ever done in her life, but she let the corners of her mat show. And people came alongside her and picked it up in the same way that she had for so many before. Her narrative about her life these days is that she feels much more fully herself than she ever has been. Because of those who picked up her mat, she is in her own home, She made a career change. Her kids are deeply loved and cared for by both parents. She's taking time for her physical and mental health. It certainly wasn't easy, but her capacity to be vulnerable did not make her weak. It made her stronger than she has ever felt. There was nothing to be gained in hiding what she couldn't handle on her own. Her faith, when it falters, is carried by her friends, just as she has carried theirs when the tables were turned. We carry others' mats, and we let them carry ours. Because we will always have our mats. They may change over time and with circumstances, but they will always be there. I think that's why the mat stayed in the story. And it's why Jesus told the man to take it home. The healed man didn't suddenly walk out the door with no more mats in his life. There would be others. There are always others. He needed to keep the mat to remember that someone had carried it for him and that someone in his life would need him to bend down in faith and pick theirs up too. There is someone in your life pretty close in proximity, someone in your sphere who needs the tenacious love of a neighbor. Maybe it's a neglected friendship, one that became inconvenient because of what they were going through. Maybe it's a relationship you haven't really pursued because it seems like they may have a lot going on and it might be hard work to love them. Maybe there's someone whose pain looks too much like your own and you don't want to walk through that again. I hope this week will prompt a phone call from you, a text message, a conversation to engage someone who may not want you to pick up their mat, but needs you to all the same. Loving our neighbor isn't easy at all, 
It's a lot of work. Love is a verb and it requires us to act. But when we do, those hardest and most vulnerable encounters, the messiness of carrying and being carried is where the miracles of Jesus begin. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you are healer and restorer. Yours alone is the power to mend a broken life. But we don't come into your presence alone. We carry and we are carried by faith, ours and others. We pray for honesty today, a scary but real look into our own lives to acknowledge the mat we sit on. Give us courage to name the weakness we hide, the pain we don't want others to see, and make us vulnerable to receive help. We pray for strength today, the willingness to put our love into action for another person. Help us to love our neighbors, the ones you've placed right into our lives by burning calories on their behalf. May our love for them be the reflection of our love for you. When our faith is weak, may we be carried to you. And when our faith is strong, may we do the carrying. In your holy name we pray. Amen.